it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, April 22nd, 2016. Do something we haven't done in a while. We're going to try to catch up on email. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open up our Bible and compare what the most popular pastors. Preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, and whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, and over and again, we show that what is passing for Christian preaching and teaching today is not actually biblical. It's a twisting of God's word and generally teaching for shameful gain the things that ought not to be taught. That's what's going on here, and we expose it. And it's not that I'm cranky or anything. It's that God's word actually says that, well, false teachers and those who twist God's word are to be rebuked, not listened to. Um, but unfortunately, we live in a day that's like anti-doctrinal. You know, we're going to follow the winds of the Spirit and not listen to what the Spirit actually inspired in the written Word of God. All right, what we're going to do today, a uh, little bit of a shorter episode, we're going to do an email segment, uh, and I don't know how long it'll take. I don't think it'll take up the first hour. It might only be like half of the first hour. And then we're going to uh, switch gears, and we're going to listen to two sermons. Uh, we're going to end the week off with two good sermons. We're going to listen to a sermon by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller on the Crucified Shepherd. And uh, then we're going to head over to Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota, and listen to the sermon I delivered this past Sunday, I think, which will be helpful uh, considering all the things that we've been covering here. So uh, so that's what we're going to do, and let's go ahead and we'll get right to it. Now, our first email comes to us uh, from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley out there at Hanley Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom. And uh, he, oh, I, whenever he emails, I mean, we got to put it at the top of the list because he's uh, very good at what he does. And uh, Pastor Charmley writes, regarding Amanda Wells, getting it backwards is what he says, uh, listening to Amanda Wells talking about imagination, I noted an all-too-common error, that of the backwards entomology, etymology. Uh, she said that the word image comes from the word imagination. On the contrary, the word imagination comes from the word image. It refers to the faculty to create mental images of things. 
there's her problem right there. But that's it's not just her. This is the same error found in those sermons where the minister says that dunamis, which is a Greek word, uh, is the word from which dynamite is derived and then goes on about dynamite as if the meaning of dynamite has any bearing on that of dunamis when in fact it's the other way around. Like many a word study fallacy, its primary use is to make the one uh, using it look smart while saying something that is inane at best and heretical at worst. It needs to be recognized and avoided. Pastor Charmley couldn't agree with you more. Next email comes to us from Roger, and Roger is actually writing from Tokyo, Japan. I am not randomly assigning a, uh, a, uh, a city for him. Uh, Roger writes, he says, I'm a long-time listener and enjoy your program. Had a quick question. Perhaps you can, or maybe in the past you have addressed um, this. Today I visited a friend's church, and the guest preacher was one of those overtly charismatic sorts. The preacher was saying that Christians should be out raising the dead, healing the sick, and doing many other extravagant miracles because of what John 14, 12 says. Quote, Verily, truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. The preacher used this verse to say that true Christians need to live up to Jesus' miracle record and even surpass him, perhaps like mass grave raisings. So my question is, what is your interpretation of this verse, and how do you correctly explain this verse to people like this who think it means that you are failing if you are not outperforming miracles. Which, by the way, I'm going to point something out, Roger. The person making the claim is not actually outperforming miracles. It's, it's weird. They're holding everybody to the standard, and they're, notice they're using John 14, 12 as a law passage. Well, if you're not doing this, well, you may not even, even be a believer. I mean, you're, you're probably not even a Christian. I mean, have you raised anybody from the dead? Well, why not? You better get cracking and get going. You know, start raising people from the dead. And, you know, to the, you know, a pastor like that, I think the important thing to do is to say, oh, pastor, I'm so glad you said this. Um, you know, and, and so what we've decided to do is we're going to take you to a hospital after, um, after the service is over. And uh, we want you to go ahead and heal everybody so that uh, we can empty the hospital out. I mean, as a demonstration of Christ's power, and uh, see what he says. And 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 then after we're done at the hospital, would we like? We're going to head over to the local graveyard, and uh, we're going to find the graves of all those people who died too young, and we want you to raise them up. And uh, and so, I mean, you you said you needed you need to do greater works than Jesus. So, uh, you know, we're going to give you that opportunity to put your money where your mouth is and uh, and see what he does, by the way, because it's uh, it's let's just put it this way. It's hard to fake a, a hospital emptying as a result of everybody being healed. Hard to fake that. Really difficult to fake that. Hard to fake raising people from the de- grave who've been dead for some time, you know, several years, months, things like that, which, I you know, you got to do greater things than Jesus. I mean. Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, and he'd been dead for, what, three, four days? So, you know, we're going to do greater things, so that means you need to be able to raise people who've been dead for several years. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, just start, throw the logic back on them, number one. And since they're using this now as a law passage, as some kind of a clobber text, if you would, if you're not doing these things, something's wrong with you. 
Yeah, the problem is is that everyone's taking that person at face value when, in fact, they're not actually performing the miracles they claim that you should be performing. Now, as far as exegetically, how should we understand this text? Um, well, we're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and context, and a second rule, which is Scripture interprets Scripture. When you take a look at those two things, you'll understand what Jesus is referring to here. So we're, we're going to add the context by adding verse 11 into the mix. Here are the two verses together. Jesus says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So when you add verse 11 into the mix here, you see the purpose of the works that Jesus is talking about. They are to bear witness to Christ. That's the purpose of the works. Okay, so believe on account of the works, the works they bear witness to Jesus so that you will believe in him. Verse 12, so truly, truly, amen, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he's not talking there necessarily about miracles. He's talking about works that bear witness to Jesus so that people will believe in Jesus. They will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Let me give you a cross-reference then. The cross-reference to this then is John chapter 10, verses 22 through 25, and here's what it says. At the time of the Feast of Dedication that took, it, 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 that took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. The works bear witness about me. And so you'll notice here that John 10, 25, and John 11, uh, 14, 11, and 12 now give us the context of what is meant by works. Is Jesus saying the greater works you will do by way of saying, well, Jesus turned water into wine, that means you have to turn water into scotch. Uh, Jesus raised somebody who's three days dead, you need to raise somebody who's been dead for two weeks. Um, is that what Jesus is saying? No, here, not at all. And see, the works that, so we're doing works that bear witness to Christ so that people will believe in him. These works can be done not you know in the in a, in a way that necessarily requires the supernatural to be on display instead these are our works done to serve our neighbor and Jesus himself says um that people will know that he you are his disciples at because of the way we love one another so there there you go. The works that we do are the works where we love one another and they bear witness to Christ. So uh, the works that we do in our vocation, loving and serving our neighbors, they bear witness to Christ. And so this is not talking about miraculous works. These are works done in ordinary places, such as your work or in your home or in your community. They can even be done by a pastor in his church, and you think about it, um, you know how many disciples did Jesus leave on the earth? Not that many, not that money, that not that many. A hundred and something were in the upper room, uh huh. 
And so you know, you think of you think of pastors out there who are out there preaching the gospel, and as a result of their preaching, more than a hundred thousands now come to, to believe in Jesus through the work that He is doing. What's the work that He's doing? Preaching the word. You think of the street evangelists out there proclaiming Christ and and telling people about Jesus and Christ and Him crucified for their sins. And think of uh, the num- you know the great n- number of people who are brought to faith in Christ through that work. The sheer number outweighs the number of disciples that Jesus left on the earth, and they're doing greater works. And it's not requiring them to raise people from the grave. It's the work of proclaiming Christ. And so the idea here is is that the works that bear witness about Jesus so that people believe in Jesus is what John 14, 11, and 12 is referring to. This is cross-referenced by John 10, 22 through 25. And when you see what's going on there, then you can see the patent absurdity of the person claiming in a charismatic way, you need to be raising the dead. Well, you first. Let's go. How many dead people have you raised? Here's a corpse. Uh, we're sorry all the skin's fallen off of them, but, you know, hey, you, greater works. Get to it. Get cracking. Start doing the greater thing. We need, to stop call, we need to stop listening to these people as if somehow they're pulling off the things that they're demanding of others. They're not. And so call them on the carpet. Understand what good biblical exegesis shows us in this regard. And you will not be deceived by people of that sort. Next email comes to us from Bill in British Columbia, Canada. And uh, he says, hi, Chris. Uh, First of all, um, I want to thank you for being there for me when I was breaking off my relationship with the NAR church in which I was the guitar player on the worship team. Or more correctly, the rock band I was questioning, you know, the, the rock band. I was questioning my pastor who was also the band leader on his obviously fake manifestations of what was supposed to be the Holy Spirit, his speaking in quote-unquote tongues without an interpreter, his claims of being able to heal people and even raise the dead, and he didn't. He was pretty much Todd Bentley on a smaller scale. Funny that how these two emails work together. I had emailed you a few times, and you actually took time out of your busy schedule at a time when one of um, your own kids was getting married, And Fomi, I really appreciated that you encouraged my discernment and gave me some relative scripture to read. Thank you. He says, anyways, when I left that church, my daughters, who were teenagers at the time, at first defended the pastor at the church and stayed there. But they eventually realized that I was right about the phoniness of the pastor and most of the people who followed him, and they ended up leaving as well. Sadly, though, while I moved to the Lutheran church, They have both now become non-believers, and they do not attend any church at all. Is it possible for me to get them back? Is there something I can say or do to help them understand the true gospel, get them to repent and put their trust in Jesus, or, uh, or do I now have to leave them to the world and pray that the Holy Spirit draws them again? Would love it if you would read this on the air and answer this. Okay. Bill, here's here's the idea. Your 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 daughters are uh, what Dr. Rosenblatt in his uh, lecture, the the gospel for those broken by the church. He's the, this is they're part of now the group who are referred to as the sad alumni of Christianity. And the answer is you yes, you can say something to them, and you must say something to them. 
But how you approach them and how you continue to talk to them, I think, is going to be important. And so the idea here is, is that although you saw the phoniness, you also understood that the counterfeit Christianity that you were seeing in this NAR church, the, the counterfeit false miracles, false manifestations, the phoniness, all of that stuff, was a counterfeit, and you saw that that actually demonstrated that there had to be an original, an authentic. The counterfeit oftentimes proves the existence of the authentic. And you went and you found you found the real Jesus and the real gospel. Your daughters, though, um, if, I, if I have to guess, are feeling like they have been deceived, that they have had the wool pulled over their eyes, and being young, they are angry and feel absolutely betrayed by what what happened at that NAR church. And here's the thing. The best thing you can do with your daughters at this point is be empathetic and basically say, listen, leaving the church makes perfect sense. I mean, I can totally understand why you would do that. But I would like you to consider this, and this is what you can say. I would like you to consider that what you saw was a counterfeit Christianity. And those were false signs and false miracles that we saw. And ironically, Jesus himself warned us about people like our old pastor at that NAR church and show them how the real Jesus actually predicted. And you find this in Matthew 24 about false Christs, false prophets, false teachers performing false signs and false wonders to deceive people. And so the idea here is, is that which you can you need you, you start to put back into their mind that what they were taught wasn't actually Christianity what they experienced was a counterfeit who they were believed they were believing in actually wasn't the biblical Jesus and so you need to kind of in a sense empathetically but firmly say listen you still do not know what Christianity is cuz you were not taught it you still do not know who Jesus was cuz you were not taught who he was. You did not encounter him. You still do not know what the biblical gospel is. And I would challenge you to not give up on Jesus because he hasn't given up on you. Instead, it actually behooves you to go and find out, you know, and deconstruct and do a postmortem and figure out exactly how you were deceived and what happened. Now, my wife and I spent some time in a church, you know, this is back in the 80s, that was part of the latter reign, which is now morphed into the NAR. And I got to tell you, the betrayal that we felt and that we experienced was profound. I mean, at, at that time in my life, atheism actually looked like a legitimate option. And so this is not insanity on their part. It's, it makes perfect sense. And so the idea is to lovingly demonstrate from Scripture and show them that what happened is not Christianity, that they were deceived in the exact way that Jesus warned us about, and start to unpack that a little bit. So the idea here is, is that um, you might need to be a little bit um, persistent, but do so with a light touch is the best way to put it, you know, is that they've totally been burned. And, um, and so the idea is, is that 
do the postmortem with them. Show them what it is that you've been learning in the church that you've been attending. Tell them who Jesus really is and things like that. And continue to invite them to come to church. Invite them to come and hear the gospel that you're hearing and see the difference between the truth and the error that uh, that they were um, that you all were a part of. And I think that's kind of the way to go. And obviously, pray. Pray, and I know you have been. Continue to pray for your daughters. They're not, God's not done with them yet. So um, you, you think of, you know, there's, there's not a promise of them coming back, but God does hear our prayers and is not his will that any should perish. So that's the way I would approach it with a lot of empathy, not saying that they're evil or wrong for leaving the church, but what they did makes sense. But it actually makes more sense for them to start to figure out what happened. And the only way to do that is start to compare what they were taught to believe compared to what Scripture says. And by doing that, God's Word then will begin to do its work on them because God's Word is living and active. Okay, next email comes from John in Issaquah, Washington. What is a a pastor supposed to do all week long? (laughs) I used to be a youth pastor, and I shared a wall with the pastor, but I never knew what he was doing all week. I was part of a megachurch with multiple locations, so my pastor didn't even preach on Sunday. But even if he did, I don't think it takes a full week to prep for a sermon, does it? What are pastors supposed to do all week long? You have fighting for the faith, and you are a pastor, but many pastors have nothing other than a sermon on Sunday. And what would you be doing as a pastor if you didn't have fighting for the faith? Now, I'm going to say this, John. Um, I, I took the call to pastor a small, and I mean this, tiny um, rural parish. And the reason why is because I know full well just how busy pastors are. And I knew that before I took the call. And I knew that if I had a congregation that I was serving that had 70, 80, 100 people, then I wouldn't be able to actually meet the needs of the people in my congregation um, you know, week after week, day after day, because uh, the job of a pastor is to not only preach the word, but also to serve Christ's sheep. And so, um, you know, a pastor who's actually being a pastor, this is going to include weekly Bible studies, studies, notice that, catechizing um, the youth and teaching them the faith. It's, uh, it, and so, uh, you know, a good pastor is also part youth pastor, by the way. But this is also going to mean uh, visiting the sick in the hospital taking the Lord's Supper and preaching and teaching to the shut-ins, those who are unable physically to make it to church, and, and of course, dealing with the, uh, the issues that arise on a week-to-week basis when there's conflict in the church among members. And that conflict oftentimes, most often, takes the form of uh, married couples who are having a, a struggle in their marriage and helping them work through those things. It can also be interpersonal conflict between members in the congregation. And and so the job of a pastor is, in reality, more than a full-time job. And if I were serving a parish that, like I said, that had 70, 80, 100 people, wow, I wouldn't be able to do fighting for the faith as well and, and be a pastor. I, we would, we'd have to get another pastor to help out with the load because um, pre, you know, preparing and preaching a sermon is only a small part of what a pastor does. Now, in the megachurches, I have no idea what they do. I mean, they don't go visit any of the shut-ins. They don't catechize the young. They don't you – know, 
I, I think they, 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 they're like, they're, well, they're like CEOs. And so, you know, they, they've got to, they've got to keep the, uh, all the plates spinning, you know, with the business that they're, that they're serving and they've set up. You, you kind of get the point. Jay from Greensboro, North Carolina writes, he says, uh, Hey, Chris, spinning off your interview with Cowboy Bob and your discussion of proof texting, do you consider Arminianism to be a proof texted theology? And why or why not? The answer is, uh, yes, I do. And in particular, I also not only think it's a proof texted theology, I think that the, you know, the primary, like the ground zero tenant of Arminianism, uh, which basically teaches that God, by an act of prevenient grace, cancels original sin so that somebody can make a decision for him. There's no biblical text that says that at all. And so they are it, not only is that a proof texted theology it is a theology that also imposes uh into the the corpus of Christian doctrine stuff that cannot can, literally cannot be found uh in uh, in scripture so yeah i consider arminianism arminianism to be a very dangerous dangerous teaching al writes and al did not tell me where he's from and uh, and Al's uh, the subject of his email is reverse narcissism question mark. And since he didn't tell me where he's from, Al is from Kathmandu. Just want to let you know that uh, he says, uh, dear Pastor Roseboro, is it possible to read oneself into the Bible for the negative, non-prosperous verses, and it still be just as wrong as reading oneself into the positive, so-called prosperous verses? Case in point, I'm reading Isaiah six, and verse five says, "Woe is me, for I'm lost." And I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Great passage, by the way, there in Isaiah 6. Taken in context, the prophet judges himself just as guilty as his fellow countrymen, but finds himself even more guilty because he's seen the Lord. Yeah, that's right, he does. Taken out of context, I could just as easily say just those words about myself. I am a sinner, and I dwell among sinners. I haven't seen the Lord face to face yet, but that doesn't reduce my level of uncleanness. Right? Wrong? I don't know, which is why I thought I would run it by you. I would love to uh, love your thoughts on this. So here's the idea. Um, Where we have common ground, true common ground that you can defend from other passages of Scripture with those in the Old Testament or even in New Testament Testament historical narratives— we can, in a sense, say we are just like those people in these ways. Okay, notice I'm saying we are like them. I'm not saying read ourselves into this text. So you can say that just like Isaiah, who when he saw the Lord realized that he is a man of unclean lips, he dwells among a people who are, who are sinful, you too can say, you know, I, I'm in the same situation Isaiah was in. I, too, am a man of unclean lips. I also am guilty. I also am a sinner. And I dwell among a people who are also very sinful. You can say the same thing because Scripture is clear. There's none righteous. No, not one. And so the idea here is is that where where it's clear you're sharing common ground with somebody in the Old Testament, especially when it comes to our sin, that's not narcissism, okay? Narcissistic eisegesis, as kind of as a practice, always looks for the hero, and you read yourself into the the text as the hero. The problem is, is that in the especially in the Old Testament types and shadows, the heroes of the historical narratives are stand-ins for Christ, and they're pointing to Him. 
And the fact that they were able to perform the exploits they did, they were able to do that by the power of God himself, God working in and through them. Yeah, they are, in a sense, pointing us to Christ very specifically. So I'll give you an example, okay? Um, When you read the historical narrative of David and Goliath, great historical narrative, and it's, it's a fantastic passage. Um, but the, uh, the the idea of reading yourself to be David and you slaying your Goliaths is, you know, I mean, no, 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 wrong, okay? David is a stand-in for Christ, so you don't want to do that. But if you must read yourself into the story of David and Goliath, may I suggest that you do this, um, that you are just like the army of Israel on the sidelines practically wetting your pants Every time Goliath would come out and you were totally frozen, incapable of freeing yourself or defeating Goliath. If, you, if you're going to read yourself into the story of David and Goliath, that's where you put you, okay? And so <laughs> that's the idea is, is that where we have true common ground, that's where we find ourselves. But you don't find yourselves in the Christ characters or the, uh, the, the characters that are pointing us specifically to Jesus himself. That is a supreme error of a high magnitude and a twisting of God's word. The, David is pointing us to Christ. Same with Joseph, by the way. But, uh, you know, it, that's I've kind of lectured on this many times over the years. But I hope that helps you out, Al. And uh, with that, we're going to go to our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pyre Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're going to end the program with uh, two good sermons, one by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and the other by myself. Stay tuned, don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. 
Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that those out there saying you need to raise the dead or you're not doing greater works than Jesus are a bunch of phonies and liars, because they are. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. This is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. 
One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you get to pick your rank. We have four ranks to choose from, and this is based upon your monthly uh, contribution. Uh, Powder Monkey is our lowest rank. You're signing up to automatically contribute $9.95 a month. Gunner's Mate, you're uh, signing up for $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95. And Quartermaster at $99.95. Great way to support us, by the way. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount, that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box one three three four four, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code five eight two zero eight. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, for the rest of the program today, we're going to listen to two good sermons. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, we have two of them. First one comes to us via Hope Within Church, Aurora, Colorado. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller presiding. The name of the sermon is The Crucified Shepherd. This is based on the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. The second sermon comes to us via... Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota. Pastor Chris Roseboro presiding. The name of his sermon is titled The Good Shepherd versus the Wolves. This is based upon Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. Just a note here. In a second, I'm going to read the text for Pastor Brian Wolfmuller's sermon, but I don't need to actually read the one prior to mine because I actually exegete through the text itself. So, uh, back off on the music. So the first sermon is, uh, like I said, based on the Gospel of John, chapter 10, 11 through 16. Let me read it, and then we'll get into the sermon. It says, uh, Jesus is speaking, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand, not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees. The wolf snatches them, scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the fa- and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is the text that forms the basis of the first sermon we'll be listening to by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Hope Lutheran Church, Aurora, Colorado, titled The Crucified Shepherd. Here we go. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Christ is risen, preaches the prophet Micah, in order to feed his flock in the power of the Lord. That's Micah 5.2. Micah 5.4, which is after Micah 5.2 that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. And that, dear saints, is my best guess as to why we have Good Shepherd Sunday in the shadow of Easter that Jesus is raised to, to feed his flock. He is not raised for himself, but for us, just as he was crucified and ascended, not for himself, but for us. And even now, Jesus sits at the Father's right hand to rule and to govern all things in heaven and on earth, not for his own sake, but for the benefit of his little flock. The church. And this is something that we consider this morning. 
But on the way there, I'd like to talk about something else. Something that's come up. I, I think this topic has come up about 20 times in the last two weeks in various different conversations with you all and with other people. And that is this question. How, as we live between the resurrection of Jesus and his return for us in glory, how do we determine what God's will is for our lives? And you've asked me that. You've been troubled about that, and you've been worried about it. So I think it's going to be good for us to think about it together. Now, here's what I see, how most people think about this. And in fact, I'll admit that I'm tempted to think this way also. First, we think that God has a certain thing for us to do, a certain way for us to go, that there's one, uh, when there's one option and every other option is wrong. And we especially think about this when it's time for a big decision, when it's time to, to take another job or time to go away to college or time to get married or time to move to this place or to that place or whatever. And we imagine that our next step is like the step, is like the next step that we take if we're walking on a tightrope. There's, when you're walking a tightrope, there's one right place to put your foot (laughs) and a lot of wrong places to put it. (laughs) And so we think that God has one thing for us to do. One right decision, one right choice to make and that anything else will be wrong. And then next, While we think that God has one right thing for us to do, we are also convinced that 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 next step is a mystery. It's a step in the dark. It's a secret that God hasn't told us what that next step is. We know, all of us know, that God has not sent us a letter in the mail that says, Dear Saint, please move to Dust Bowl, Texas and study marmot husbandry and go at the West Texas Community College and get married to Teresa Sima and name your first child Fred and live on the corner of Elm and Third. Signed, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we don't have that clarity. So that the next step is not, is not, is not sure for us. So then, third, we are tempted to try to sort out what that next step is, what God's will for our next step in our life is that one right thing to do, we try to figure out the secret. Sometimes we talk about open doors. God opened those doors and he closed those doors or something like that. Or we talk about things falling into place. It just seems right or everything felt right. Or, and I think this is most often what we talk about, we talk about the signs. These signs are the little hints at what what God's hidden will is, little clues that we have to look for and, in, and and interpret to figure out what that one next step is. And especially, now you know this, I know it too, when we're unsure about what we should do next, then we're always looking for the signs. Everywhere we go, we're looking for signs. Everywhere we go, we're seeing signs. And every coincidence, every little thing that happens to us, we interpret like a little whisper from heaven. Now, I think... Looking at it this way, sitting here on Sunday morning, we can see that this is probably a little bit silly. But in the midst of trouble, you know this as well as I, in the midst of trouble, when we're stuck, when we don't know what to do, all of us are pushed in this direction. 
In, in thinking that, that God has a singular thing for us to do, that it's a secret, and that we have to interpret what it is by the signs. But, but not only, dear saints, is this silly, it is in fact wrong. And it is also dangerous. Now, there's probably a lot of things that we can say about this, but here are a few for us to think about. First, God never promised to give you signs and hints about the things you can do. And to expect God to give you those signs, to expect that from God, is to expect from Him something that He never promised, and this is tempting God. In fact, looking for signs that God has not promised is a kind of witchcraft. It's trying to get access to the future, to the hidden knowledge of God that he has not given us access to. First point. Second point. To think that we need something more from God that he hasn't given us, that we need another word from God, that we need another piece of direction from God, that we don't have enough information to know what to do next. In other words, to expect this is to deny the sufficiency of God's word, of the Scripture. If God wants you to know something, He will tell you. And He, in fact, will make it so sure that He'll have one of His prophets or His apostles write it down for you so that he knows what you want him to think, what what he wants you to think, so that you cannot miss it. Third, to think that there is only one right thing for us to do, only one right step for us to take, only one right option in our future, is to be bound where God has not bound us. There are hundreds and thousands of right and good things for you to do with your life. Even this afternoon, you could go to lunch with your friends. You could call your family. You could take a nap. You could do your taxes. You could read some more on the verses that we're going to study in Bible class from Second Peter. You are free regarding these things. Now, this freedom, of course, has limits, You are not free to rob a bank. (laughs) God has told you, you shall not steal. You are not free to skip church. God has told you, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You are not free to curse your neighbor or sit around angry. In other words, you're not free to sin. But in all the different vocations that God has given us, there are thousands of ways that we might live and love our neighbor And this is just as true with the big questions in our life as it is with the small questions in our life. You are free to love God and to love the neighbors that the Lord has given you. And fourth, the consequence of looking for signs about God's secret will for the future are, are, are all, almost all bad. First, they get we end up blaming God for our mistakes. If we do the wrong thing, then it was God leading us down the, the, the wrong path. And then on the other hand, all of this, this way of looking for God's signs about what we should do next, it takes away from us the opportunity to be both wise and courageous, both things that the Lord has commanded us to be. 
You see, dear saints, that we stand and face the future as Christians who are set free by the gospel and placed in our various vocations by God to love our neighbor. And we are called in this place to live a life of wisdom and of courage. We don't look at the future as some sort of secret to be sorted out through secret signs. But instead, we ask this question. What is my station in life according to the Ten Commandments? And we pray for wisdom, trusting that the Lord hears and answers this prayer. The Lord does not need to tell you what His will for you is. He has already told you. It is His Ten Commandments. And these... I am sure, are enough to keep us busy without adding more to it. So if we're thinking, for example, about moving to for, for work or for school or for whatever reason, we ask the question, can I keep the third commandment in that place? Can I go to a church and hear the gospel preached and receive the Lord's Supper? If there's no church in the place where I want to move and I have a choice whether to move there or not, then I can't go. It would be breaking the Lord's law. But if there's good churches in all of these different places, then I am free to sort out what I think is best. Now, of course, that's not the only question we ask. I mean, the Ten Commandments, there's ten of them. But this is an example of how the Ten Commandments intersect with our freedom. Or, or when it's time to get married, we don't imagine that the Lord has picked one right person for us, the mysterious soulmate, and we're reading the signs from heaven trying to figure it all out. We ask, is this person honorable? Is this person a Christian, a Lutheran, who will bring our children to the font and teach them to pray and to, to learn the Scriptures and the Catechism? And if so, then we are free, and we ask the Lord for wisdom, and we do what seems best to us. What is my station in life according to the Ten Commandments? This is the question that determines what we do. And it gives us a wonderful freedom in this life as we live under the care of our Lord Jesus who loved us and who died for us and was raised for us. And one other thing, I think about this, you know, sometimes we get stuck and we don't know what to do, and in these situations, it's good to listen to the counsel of friends who are wise. And in this situation, we rejoice in being part of the Lord's church where the Lord is teaching us all how to be wise. And so the key is this. Look for someone who has more white hair than you (laughs) and ask them to have a cup of coffee and talk through how you're stuck and ask them to pray for you. We rejoice that the Lord Jesus has given us in this congregation a large deposit of wisdom. (laughs) And we are thankful for this. Now, in all of this, in all of it, we sin. I mean, even when we're considering our life according, our station in life according to the Ten Commandments, we sin. We fail. We break God's law. We, we do the wrong thing even when we know what the right thing is to do. And that's why Luther, when he's teaching us to go and confess our sins, he teaches us to ask the same question. Consider your station in life according to the Ten Commandments. And when we consider this, not only do we know what to do, but we also know what we should repent of. 
Because no matter how hard we try, we fail. We fail to love our neighbors we should. We fail to honor God as we should. We are sinners. We all, this is how Peter describes us in the epistle lesson from today, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. This is true. And we feel it. We feel it in our conscience. Perhaps we feel it this morning, even as we think of how we're tempted to look for signs from God, and we think, I've been doing that my whole life. It's wrong. And this is why Jesus, when it's time to talk about you and me as his sheep and himself as our shepherd, has something wonderful to say. You see, for Jesus, it's not enough for him to say, I am the good shepherd who leads the sheep to green pasture. I am the good shepherd who leads the sheep to the still water. I am the good shepherd who leaves the 99 in the wilderness and tracks down the lost sheep and carries it back and celebrates with joy. This is all wonderful and it's all true. But for Jesus, is not enough. Because his sheep are sinners. We are sinners. And we need, in fact, something more than leading and guiding. So Jesus has this to say. I am the good shepherd I lay down my life for the sheep. I die for the sheep. I am crucified for the sheep. That is for you. And dear saints of God, dear sheep of his flock, this is astonishing and wonderful that Jesus gives us everything, not just still waters and green pastures. He gives us himself. His life, his death, his blood, his everything. Because he knows what it takes to rescue and redeem us. He knows what it takes to rescue us from the jaws of death. From the mouth of the devil. So he hands himself over to these things. He hands himself over to suffering. He hands himself over to death. He hands himself over to the grave so that he can have you. And he's got you. He's got you. He's got you with his resurrection. He's got you with his promise of forgiveness, the forgiveness of all of your sins. He calls you by name. And you, dear saints, dear lambs of the Lord's flock, you hear his voice. Remember uh, two hours ago when I started this sermon? And I said that we don't have a letter from God telling us what the will is for our life, what the next step is, where we're supposed to live and what to do. Now, that's true. But we do have a letter from him telling us what he has done (laughs) and what he thinks of us. And when you hear his word read and preached, you hear the voice of Jesus, our good shepherd. And you hear his promises of love and mercy and kindness. These promises which have no limit and know no end. So we ask the question, what is God's will for my life? We might not know where we're supposed to live or what we're supposed to study or what we're supposed to do. But we do know that we're supposed to hear his word and believe it.
and have life in His name. God's will for your life is your forgiveness. God's will for your life is His mercy and peace. And God's will for you is the resurrection where you will stand before Him in glory in a life that knows no end. Because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Now, sermon number two comes to us via Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. Pastor Chris Roseboro presiding. The sermon is titled, The Good Shepherd versus the Wolves. The Good Shepherd versus the Wolves. It's based on Acts chapter 20, 17 through 35, and I actually work my way through the text as part of the sermon. So, Grab a Bible, and uh, you'll need it because there's some cross-references in there. And so here's our last sermon of the day, The Good Shepherd versus the Wolves. In the name of Jesus. So we've all heard the Disney song, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? Right? Today is Good Shepherd Sunday, and this is one of the most amazing images in Scripture. The, the image that Christ is our shepherd. We are his beloved sheep. Now, if you think this is an amazing thing and make, it makes, you should, makes, makes it so that you should feel good about yourself, keep in mind that sheep are pretty dumb animals. Yeah, They are completely oblivious to the fact that they have enemies. And if it weren't for shepherds, they would surely be toast. They have no natural defenses whatsoever and have a tendency to wander off and, even worse, bite the hand that guides them. Fascinating thing about them. But our text today is going to be taken from our first reading, the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 17 through 35. And in here, we have the Apostle Paul talking to a group of shepherds, pastors. That's whom he is talking to. So we return to, now to our first reading. It says this, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. The elders would be the pastors. And keep in mind, Paul is the guy who did all the missionary work in Ephesus. We read about his trip there in the book of Acts and how he stayed there for a very, very long time. In fact, his, um, his missionary work included having kind of a standing gig, if you would, in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And in the marketplaces, he worked as a tent maker to pay for his missionary work. And everywhere he went, he would tell people about Jesus, tell them about the fact that he is the Messiah promised long ago from God, tell them about the forgiveness of sins, tell them about the fact that he is raised again from the grave for their justification, and that he himself was an eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. And the gospel took root in the city of Ephesus, and Ephesus became one of the early, and I mean early, strongholds of Christianity. Many congregations were there. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, though, and he doesn't know that if, if he's going to live. He knows that trouble awaits him when he gets to Jerusalem. And so you can kind of think about what it is that he's about to say to these pastors as, in a sense, kind of like a last will and testament. He thinks he may be dying. He may never see them again. He's pretty confident of that. And so keep that in mind. We hold the words of somebody who is a dying person to be very precious and very important. If somebody ever makes you promise something while they're dying, that promise oftentimes sticks with you and you feel that you have a very important 
um, need to fulfill that promise. So think of these words in that way. So when they came to him, the pastors came to Paul, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. An important word there, by the way, is the word shrink. And uh, being a pastor, I understand the temptations that pastors face. I, we follow electionary here, which, by the way, is a good thing for you. Because oftentimes, and I think Gloria can even testify as we're doing our worship committee work, planning out the worship for the month ahead, sometimes we'll get to electionary reading and I'll go, ooh, that's going to be tough to preach on. And the temptation is to shrink back. And this word kind of has as a picture of it. If you would think of it, if you're in an army, an ancient army, you don't have machine guns, you have shield and sword or shield and spear. And what happens is that the army is supposed to put up a united line. The guy who shrinks back is the guy who says, okay, I'm going to just do this. And I, you over here, you can dive. I'm going to stay. I'm going to live, right? The guy who shrinks back acts as a coward and lets his buddies do the work while he does the living. They do the dying, he does the living. That's what shrink back means here. So Paul says that he did not shrink back and that he told everybody, Jews and Greeks, listen to this, of repentance towards God. This has to deal with our sins. Repentance is saying, God, you're right, I'm wrong. You're holy, I'm sinful, I'm not measuring up. Have mercy on me. And of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, which speaks to the gospel. And Paul then continues, speaking to this group of shepherds, under-shepherds of the great shepherds. He says, now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except for the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. You know, seriously, I mean... What kind of employer is God? <laughs> right? Yeah, fascinating stuff here. He says, But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. And this harkens to Jesus' words. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And so he received from the Lord the commission to testify to the gospel of God's grace And he says, now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not, here's the word again, shrink, shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And you can note here, even in this address, Paul talks about the plots of the Jews, the personal cost to himself for preaching the full counsel of God's Word, which is why there's the temptation to shave off the hard edges, to not preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Because, well, there's just certain passages of Scripture, certain doctrines that are revealed in the holy writings that, well, we don't want to hear. We just don't want to hear it. But Paul says he's innocent of the blood of all. This harkens back to the prophet Ezekiel. 
Well, God says to Ezekiel, if you do not call a sinner to repent, I will require his blood of you. So Paul says, I testify that I'm innocent of the blood of all. And the reason for this is because he preached the truth in its entirety. And then he says this, pay attention to yourselves, pastors, and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Notice here, who is it that calls pastors into the office of the Holy Ministry? The Holy Spirit Himself. He says, take care of the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. Now that's a whole other sermon, but let me just ask the question, when did God bleed? Answer, on the cross. So who does that make Jesus? God. Pretty simple, right? Of course, we heard in our gospel text, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Indeed, they are. They are the same God, but they are two different persons, yet the same God. But that's the mystery of the Trinity. We'll talk about that in more depth when we get to Trinity Sunday, which is just a few weeks away. So Paul then says this to these pastors, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Among whom? Among the pastors. Not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, pastors, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? If you think that there are no wolves running through Christ's church, tearing up Christ's sheep, you are gravely mistaken. Paul is not overreacting here. He's not acting in a paranoid way at all. What he is saying is absolutely true. And just like in his day today, there are pastors who are speaking twisted things. And they're not making disciples of Jesus. They are making disciples after themselves. You can always tell, and I mean this, you can always tell who a false pastor and a wolf is. They preach themselves. They don't preach Christ. That's the sure sign. They preach me. They preach you. They don't preach Christ. You see, under shepherds of the good shepherd, Jesus, know that whom they work for, and they know in whom there is salvation. It's in Christ. He's the one who gets all the glory. The false teachers, I mean, literally, I mean, the way they behave and the doctrines they teach, which have never been heard before, oftentimes, all right? So they come along, and they've got some new interpretation, some new doctrine. And you'd sit there and think, well, the church has been here for 2,000 years. How on earth did the church survive without this man? Thankfully, God has finally sent somebody to once and for all help us understand what the Bible says, because for 2,000 years we were totally clueless. Right? But see, that's what's going on. Oh, and it's piped into your house. Just flip the channel to that one station. Oh, there's two now, right? And you hear the guy with the shiny teeth saying, what you really need to do is decree and declare. God is for you. He's not against you. You're the head, not the tail. You are super-de-duper important, and all you have to do is speak the right words, and you can create an amazing destiny for yourself. God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to prosper. He's going to take you to the next level, and it's all up to you. Just stretch out with your faith. Speak it into existence. 
And then when you open your Bible, the Bible says none of this stuff. What does that make that man? A wolf. But he has a large church. Multi-million dollar ministry. He's a wolf. Plain and simple. He's speaking twisted things. He's drawing away disciples after himself. And Jesus in our Gospel text makes it clear that these men are not even believers. Remember Jesus' words. You do not believe Me because you are not among My sheep. My sheep hear My voice. I know them. And they follow Me. These men are not even believers. Now Paul had some experience dealing with wolves. We'll talk about two groups that are found in your Bible. The first group are the Judaizers. We'll talk about them a little bit more next week. The Judaizers Judaizers in Acts chapter 15, the circumcision group, they believed that you were not saved by grace through faith alone. They believed that you were saved by grace and then by keeping the Mosaic law, observing Torah. And that includes, if you're a man, a little surgical procedure that may cause you to be sore for a few days called circumcision. You can imagine the impact that would have on evangelism, right? And it says in Acts chapter 15, the Judaizers said that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Straight up lie. The Apostle Paul, when you read his epistle to the Galatians, has some very strong words for these people. He anathematizes them. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than one already preached, let him be damned. And he would not budge, not even an inch of ground, wouldn't compromise one bit of doctrine for the sake of the gospel. You see, normally the way conflict works in life goes like this. All right? You got a husband, you got a wife. Things start to get a little squirrely in the relationship. They start to get short and angry with each other. And then they start making mistakes, both of them. They call the pastor up. Pastor, we need to talk to you, or something like that. Or they go to a marriage counselor. And the marriage counselor, the pastor, will sit there and say, well, here's your part in what you've done wrong, and here's her part in what she's done wrong. And you need to figure out a compromise. It's a good way of dealing with things, because none of us are actually fully right or fully wrong in our relationships. Oftentimes, we have a lot of sin that we pack into our relationships. But when it comes to doctrine, you do not make compromises. It's the faith once delivered to the saint. The people who are teaching false doctrine, you do not compromise with them. They are wolves. You don't sit there and say, all right, well, maybe we're saved by grace through faith alone, but it's okay to talk about it in a way where it sounds like it could also be works too doesn't work that way, does it? No. And so Paul has some of his harshest words written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Judaizers. But there's not too many Judaizers today, although the Judaizing heresy is making a roaring comeback in the form of what's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Okay? 
Oddly enough, it hasn't really taken deep root here, but in Montana, there's a lot of folks that are falling for that heresy again. In our day, though, the group that Paul dealt with that is closest to whom we deal with were the so-called super-apostles, right? You see, you got pastors, teachers, prophets, apostles, but then this other group came along. They were called the super-apostles. Okay? Paul was just an apostle. These guys were super-apostles. And let me explain how this kind of worked. Is Back in the day, they didn't have television. They didn't have theaters quite the same way we had them, and they didn't have novels and books you know, distributed quite the way they would. So what would people do for entertainment? Well, back in the day, there were people who were skilled orators. They were instructed in oration, and they were so good at what they did that they could hold an audience captive where people would hang on every single word. They were generally easy to look at, they dressed well. They had makeup or their hair was done right, right? They were not the ugly people, right? And they could command very large quantities of money for their oration. And some of them became Christians and then carried their vocation as orators into the churches. So... These were people that the Apostle Paul had to deal with. And the odd thing is, when you read 2 Corinthians, especially starting in chapter 10, Paul begins to address the church at Corinth who invited these guys in. And you know what they said about Paul? Well, he's not one of the super apostles. I mean, look at him. I don't know if you know this about Paul, but church history records that he wasn't very good looking. Some... Some church fathers describe him as short, ugly, hook-nosed, and cross-eyed. No joke, okay? And, and, and he wasn't very skilled at speaking, like not at all. You don't believe me? One account in the book of Acts tells us that one time Paul was preaching and some kid fell asleep during a sermon, fell out of a window, and died. Okay? Now, I've never killed any of you while preaching, but I have seen some of you wander off and doze off. Okay? That's why we have pews, it's to keep you from dying. Okay? <laughs> All right? So, by the standards of the super apostles, they were, the super apostles were shiny pennies. Paul was a slug nickel. All right? That's kind of the comparison. And the church at Corinth, they were listening to these guys, and Paul has to write to kind of correct them. And watch what he says about them. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll start at verse 1. He says, I, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And Paul here is not complimenting them. Think about this. Another Jesus? A different spirit? A whole other gospel? 
Is a different Jesus able to save you? No. Different spirit? No. Different gospel? No. Not at all. All right. So Paul is gently at this point, but he's going to take the he's going to crank it up in intensity in just a minute here. As you put up with this readily enough, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these so-called super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking, hard to look at too, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Yes, see, the super apostles came in and say, and how much did Paul charge you to preach here? He didn't charge you very much. Oh, he did it for free. You know why he did it for free? Because it's not worth the same message that we would preach. Super apostles would come in and they'd charge a large sum of money. And they would gladly pay it. Paul, he did it free of charge. Right? And so the super apostles convinced the church at Corinth that Paul was somehow super inferior. And the reason why he was not charging anything is because his messages weren't worth listening to. Isn't that amazing? So he says, because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, did I, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, they supplied my needs. So I refrain and I will refrain from burdening you in any way as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I don't love you? God knows that I love you. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms we do. And now it comes. Watch what Paul says about these so-called super-apostles. For such men are false apostles. They are not true. They are deceitful workmen. They are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Now, when we think of angel here, oftentimes we think like the bright, shiny angel, big wings and stuff like that. I think a better way to think of it is this way. The word angelos can also mean messenger. And that's its normal usage. Satan disguises himself as a messenger of light. You see, Satan's a preacher. Was he not preaching in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say, Oh, you will not surely die. Because God knows that you, when you eat of the fruit, you will, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. That was a sermon. So Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it should not surprise you if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And see, that's the thing. False teachers and wolves, they say words like, Jesus God, Holy Spirit, Redeemer. But all those words have a different meaning. They preach a different Jesus, a different spirit, totally different gospel. They preach themselves. They don't teach the historic Christian faith. They twist God's Word. And they stand in Christian pulpits. Paul says of them, their end will correspond to their deeds. 
Translation, they're on their way to hell. And they're trying to preach you into the same place they are going, thinking that they are preaching you into heaven. But they refuse to preach the truth or to even believe it. Now, if you think Paul's just being cranky, okay, that's, an off, that's oftentimes a claim. Okay? You know, there's this group of people that call themselves red-letter Christians. Red-letter Christians, they ignore Paul. All right? From time to time, you'll get a Newsweek article or a Time Magazine article claiming that Paul is the inventor of Christianity, trying to drive a wedge between Paul and Jesus. Let me read to you what Jesus says about the last times from Matthew 24, some highlights. Verses 4 and 5 in Matthew 24, Jesus says, See to it that no one leads you astray, talking about what it will be like in the last days. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Verse 11, Jesus says, Many false prophets will rise, and they will lead many astray. It doesn't say some. Jesus said many Verses 22 through 27, in the last days, if they had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I want you to think about this for a second. We all pretty much understand that what you see on Christian television ain't right. That there's a lot of false teachers and false prophets broadcasting on Christian television. You think it's bad now. Let me tell you what Jesus says is coming. Here's how this is going to go down. You're going to get an email from a friend someday. And the email is going to say, did you see what happened on TBN last night? And you write back, no, what happened? They have a report out of Uganda. Jesus is in Uganda. They've got photographs of him. And they kind of look like the fuzzy photographs of the Sasquatch, right? Yeah. So, you know, you can always... So there's, there, and there's claims coming that he's gone from Uganda and he's, gonna, he's, he's heading out to Madagascar. And there's a team of people following him. And then the report will be, yes, Jesus appeared to us. And it's going to be all the buzz, right? And a whole lot of people who call themselves Christians are going to get caught up in this and they're going to think it's real. And then you will point them to this passage and they're saying, you're just being divisive. You're a hater. You're not listening to what the Spirit is doing right now. Of course Jesus appeared in Uganda. Like I said, you think it's bad now. This is what's coming. But Jesus says, they will arise, and listen to this, they will perform great signs and wonders. So when the TBN camera crew finally catches up with Jesus, notice the air quotes, right? Is he's appearing in Madagascar. You know what's going to happen? This Jesus is going to perform miracles. There's going to be somebody bonafide, stone-cold dead. They're going to have a death certificate. There's going to be a corpse, undeniably a corpse. This guy's going to raise him from the dead. And everyone's going to go, see, it's Jesus. And then when you listen to his message, 
It doesn't sound anything like what Jesus would preach at all. But Jesus says they will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, notice what he says, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness. You know what Jesus said? Compromise. Just, this is all okay. No, he says, don't go out. If they say to you, look, he's in the inner room. He says, go ahead and entertain the thought. Maybe it's me. Nope. He says, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He's told us all of this ahead of time because the wolves are already in the church and it's going to get so bad that this is what's coming. You think Paul was being cranky now? Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? Let's talk about what true preachers preach, though. Paul said he didn't shrink back from preaching the truth. Preach the full counsel of the Word of God. Repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul lays out the foolishness of what it is that he preached. It sounds like total stupidity to the world. Are you ready? Here it is. For the word of the cross. The word of the cross. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who's wise? Wise by the world's standards. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And see, the wisdom of the world's all about, well, how to become one of the pretty people. How to become one of the people who has the big house, the nice car, the nice, beautiful, new, plush carpet, padded bank account, the island in Bermuda, the bungalow in Barbados. Right? And to be healthy, wealthy, wise. This is what the wisdom of the world is all about. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Yeah, think of miraculous signs. Greeks, they seek wisdom. Oh, but yeah, we don't preach any of that. We preach Christ crucified for sinners, for your sins and mine. And this is a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Anyone here royalty? Good, me either. God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. Like an ugly, scrawny-looking, cockeyed man with a hooked nose who doesn't speak very well like Paul. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. And that's true of you, brothers and sisters. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
in the waters of your baptism. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been raised to new life in Him. You are fed with the very body and blood of Christ here the Lord's table. You are in Him. God has placed you in Him. And so Christ has become for us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In other words, Jesus is everything. Jesus is your righteousness. He's your sanctification. He's your redemption. So that it is, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And see, that's the scandal of all of this. When you really understand what Christianity teaches, it teaches you can't do a thing to save yourself. You are in total slavery and bondage to sin, death, and the devil. You can't bargain your way out. There's not enough good works that you can do. You couldn't write a check big enough and give it to an orphanage to buy your way into heaven and out of slavery to sin. You are stuck. And the only way out of this is for God to come and save you and for Him to do it all. We don't like that. There's got to be something I can do. No, it's gift, period. How many zeros do you want behind the check? Put the checkbook away. You can't buy it. Because you were purchased with the blood of God. Right? So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The reason for this is simple. For I decided to know nothing among you. Nothing. Except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the mark of a real apostle. Of a true teacher. Not a wolf. One who truly is a shepherd under the great shepherd, Jesus. They preach nothing. And I mean nothing except for Christ and Him crucified. So Paul ends with these words, Therefore, be alert. Be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, the Gospel, which is able to build you up, give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. False teachers, they covet all of those things. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me in all things I have shown you that by working hard and in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And here's our closing thought. We've all heard those words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. We trot those words out at Christmas time. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And so we like to give... Christmas time. But notice the context in which, in which these words appear. It is more blessed to give than to receive. This is now in the context of a pastor preaching Christ as opposed to preaching himself. And as a pastor, I can say it is truly more blessed to give than to receive because if I don't give you Jesus, I've got nothing to give you. I've got no wisdom, no philosophy, no easy steps to make your life better. I do not know the secrets of how to gain wealth or how to stay healthy. My girth should prove that. And so it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. And I pray that in our preaching today, you heard that you have Jesus. 
because there is nothing else except for Christ and Him crucified for your sins. There is no other message that I could preach to you. Think of me like a 1970s or early 80s one-hit wonder band. I don't know if you all remember the Knack and their song, My Sharona. Never, never, nobody ever talks about their other great hits because there weren't any. Right? So I got one message. I got one thing to give you. Jesus. Because He's everything. And He has done it all for you. He is your good shepherd. He loves and He cares for you. And He loves and cares for you enough that He has warned you ahead of time to not listen to the wolves who would come in His name who desire to devour you. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Amen! So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, by Carrie's death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.